Hello, Pastor Matt here. At New Life Baptist Church, we are pleased to be able to make these resources available to the public. Our desire is that these online resources or any other resources you find online would never be used to replace you joyfully belonging to a local church body, but rather that they would be supplemental for your walk with Christ. I pray that through this sermon, the word of the living God would stir your affections for Christ, strengthen your commitment to him, and broaden your understanding of who he is. We are continuing for our exposition of the first letter of Peter in a series entitled Faithful Sojourners walking worthy in a wayward world. So far, Peter has really been interested and focused on simply telling Christians what God has done and how you are to live in response to what God has done. And that's interesting because we talked about how uh, he, he opened up this letter saying that these are the elect exiles in the dispersion. That these are people who either are or soon will face various forms of persecution, of suffering. Uh, We know from verses uh, 6 through 9, when we studied that section, that they have been grieved by various trials. So at some level, the church of that time was experiencing some sort of tribulation and trial. But Peter's aim so far has not been at all to address what's going on around them, but only to focus on what God has done within them. That is truly the focus for every Christian at any time in your life. Believer, regardless of what happens to you, regardless of what goes on and transpires around you, regardless of the cultural changes, the shifts in society, different varying godless ideologies that are passed around and propagated at many different levels, what your focus is, is what God has done and how I am to live, not in response to the culture, not in response to my situation, not in response to my hurt or my pain or my suffering, but in response to what God has done. That is the aim and the focus of a faithful Christian And we will know that as we do that, we are filled with joy. Even as we suffer, even as we are grieved by various trials, even as there is persecution aplenty, that we will find that we have plenty of cause to rejoice. So this morning will not be any different. Peter is going to exhort us uh, with a command, but it's going to be surrounded by, once again, what God has done. So if you would, please stand with me as we read God's Word together. We're going to be 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. This is the Word of the living God. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for 
All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we have now sung your word and prayed your word, we turn our attention to proclaim and study your word. Father, we want to learn, we want to grow, we want to know what it is that you are demanding of us and requiring of us, for the cost that you paid for us was high. We are not our own, we confess that. We have been bought with a price, we confess that. So Lord, please teach us how then we shall live in this wayward world so that we can be faithful to you. I pray that you would bless the going forth of your word and bless the receiving of your word, that it may bear much fruit in all of our lives for the good of the body and the glory of Christ. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. As you see in your bulletin, we have four major headings that we're going to work through today. Uh, A good practice whenever you study scripture is to ask very simple questions. And as you ask simple questions, they lead to more detailed questions. Ask good questions of Scripture. So we're going to sort of do that this morning with very simple questions. And as we work through our headings, you're going to see how each question builds off of the answer from the last question. You'll see what I mean as we work through this. Our uh, titles... Uh, Our sermon's title today is Gospel-Empowered Love. So the first question that we want to ask of this text is, what are we to do? It's our first major heading. What are we to do? When you sit down with this passage in front of you, and you are asking, what are we to do? Well, this is a very simple answer, isn't it? Peter writes in verse uh, 22 here, love one another earnestly. What are we to do? Love. It's a very simple answer. Love. It is the greatest commandment according to Jesus. Love for God and love for other people. It's also the first fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? From Galatians chapter 5. John tells us in 1 John 4 that God is love. Love is the subject of Paul's beautiful, almost poetic discourse in 1 Corinthians 13, the most popular wedding chapter. Love is kind. Love is patient. Love is one of the three main Christian virtues that Paul lists at the end of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. He says, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. We could go on and on and on, but suffice it to say that love certainly is the highest of Christian virtues. So then it stands to reason then that after Peter has dealt with both hope and faith, which are the other Christian virtues in verses 13 and 21 respectively, that he'd now move on to talk about love. It really is such a simple command, but it is one of utmost importance. Now for a moment, let's place ourselves in the context of the letter here. 
that we are the elect exiles in the dispersion, which we truly are, but understanding what's going on at this time. You know, love is, is always important. It's always a command for believers that we would love. But it would be all the more so when you are living as exiles in the midst of a hostile society. Wouldn't love be absolutely vital when you are grieved by various trials, facing persecution and being tested in the flames of affliction? The Christian community of that time, now more than ever, would have a high demand of love. It would be imperative that in the middle of all that they would find going on around them and to them, that they not forget that they still must love. In other words, don't take out your frustrations or your hurt or your sadness on anyone else. Instead, your command is that you must love. Now, this would be imperative for each individual believer to show, but also it would be imperative to be received, wouldn't it? When you are down and out and suffering and persecuted, that you would be able to turn to brothers and sisters in Christ in your time of need and receive not harshness, not the same cold shoulder that you get from the world, not the same, uh, well, just get over it kind of mentality that you would get from perhaps your coworkers, but that you could turn to the Christian community and be reminded of God's love, how important this is. But it's also important to notice that this command to love is not hingent upon anyone else or anything, is it? He simply says to love. He doesn't say, if. I didn't find an if, do you? There's no if there. In other words, if you're in the mood, if you're having a good day, if your friends are making you happy, if you feel up to it, if you have the energy, if, if, if. We tend to love that way, don't we? We love to talk about God's unconditional love when the love that we decide to show is riddled with conditions. I will readily demonstrate love if you make me happy, if you're not acting crazy, if you're acting this certain way towards me. But this is not the command that Peter issues. It's not hinged upon anyone else. In that, we can see the selfless nature of love. That God didn't include some sort of conditional statement tells us that the command to love is, is not conditional. Remember, he's writing to believers in the middle of trials and persecution. And what does he tell them? Not let everyone feel sorry for you. You must love your brothers and sisters. Wow. Do we think that way? Do we think about when we are grieved and, and facing difficulties... Do we think about what I still need to bring to other people? Or do we simply think about what can I take from other people? You see, there is a way that we can pursue Christian living. That we can pursue truth. That we can pursue commitment to the local church. And even that we can stand firm in the, the midst of persecution that would not be very godly. You remember, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the language of angels, if I give up my body to be burned, if I 
give all I have to charity, but I have not love? Nothing. I'm a noisy, clanging symbol. And in the same way, church, here we just talked about our coming bylaws, we, this new direction that we're about to head out on. We can do all of those things well and have an excellent doctrinal statement, but guess what? If we have not love, we are nothing. We would not be a church pleasing unto the Lord if we lack love. Paul in Colossians 3, after issuing, issuing several commands regarding Christian living and community, he tells us in verse 14, listen to this, above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on love, because it binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the highest of Christian virtues, and it is Peter's main focus here in these four verses. Okay, love is perhaps simple enough to understand, but the next question that would arise then is, who are we to love? Our second heading for today. Who are we to love? Well, let's read. What does Peter say? Love one another. As we think about love, we know very well that we are to love all people. We know that. However, there is also another special kind of love that is required amongst believers, amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. We know this to be true in a very clear, simple way, because Peter says one another. Who is Peter writing to? Elect exiles in the dispersion. He's not writing to your family. He's not writing to co-workers. He's not writing to you and your group of friends. He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. And to those Christians, what does he say? Love one another. Love each other. This isn't the only time in the New Testament that we are told to specifically love our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know this verse well in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In other words, we demonstrate that we are disciples of Christ when Christians love each other. Not just showing love in a generic fashion to people at the gas station and at work or in your friend's circle, but specifically in the household of God, specifically in the Christian community, that there would be love for each other. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans 12.10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. How do you demonstrate that you know God? Is you love the people of God. Listen, there is no such thing as loving Christ and not loving the people of Christ. 
You cannot love Jesus and not love the people that Jesus died for. Very clearly, there is a kind of love that we are to have for one another that is special and unique. Why? Because we are the family of God. God is our Father. He has adopted us into His family, making us all undeserved sons and daughters of the Most High God. We truly are a family. That's not just a sentimental statement. That's not just to put on a bumper sticker or on a poster or a website. It's actually the reality of the relationship of the redeemed is that we love each other. We are dearly loved by our Father to the extent that He gave His only Son to pay our ransom. If this is the kind of love that the Father lavishes on His children, listen, then surely His children ought to love each other in like manner. If we are to love one another, then what does this love look like? How are we to love one another? How are we to love one another? Three ways. Number one, he writes in verse 22, a sincere brotherly love. Sincere brotherly love. How are we to love one another? First, sincerely. This is a word that means free from hypocrisy or deceit and genuine. It is a real, pure, heartfelt love that we are to have for one another. It isn't fake. It's not phony. It's not simply playing nice with each other. You've heard people say, tell me if you've heard this before or if you've said it this morning, well, I love them. I just don't like them. You can always tell who has said it when they laugh. (laughs) Just kidding, not pointing anyone out, okay? We've all said it at some point, I'm sure. I love them, I just don't like them. I love them, I just can't stand them. That's not love. What kind of love is that? I love them, they just get under my my skin. They just get on my nerves. I just don't like to be around them. My friends, it's not love. That's a whole other thing entirely. Not loving in a sort of tit-for-tat way where as long as you're benefiting me, then I will love you. As long as you live up to my standard, my conditions, then I love you. Instead, it's a pure, genuine love issuing from a pure heart. Secondly, earnestly. He says, love one another earnestly. This could almost be the answer to a fourth question of, When should we love one another? Because it does carry the sense of time, of constancy. It is a real, fervent, deep love that does not stop. From a particular commentary that I read, it says, Taken as a whole, to love earnestly with all your heart is to involve the whole being in the task of fervently and constantly loving God. Others. Fervently means with great enthusiasm or passion, and doing that constantly. You want to see an example of this? This word earnestly is used in Luke twenty two forty four of Jesus. 
when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Do you see the level of effort indicated by the word earnestly? That he was praying to the point of blood. Jesus prayed so earnestly that he was sweating blood and eventually he would love us so earnestly that he would spill his blood We have to ask ourselves at this point, if you haven't already, do I love people this way? I mean, really, do I love my church family this way? Fervently? Constantly? At all times? Sincerely? Not only when it's convenient, not only when it suits you, not only when you're in the mood, not only when you're having a good day, not only after they first have shown you kindness, but even when, if not especially when, it's the most difficult. You see, it wasn't easy for Jesus to pray. He was sweating blood. And that was how the word earnestly is indicated. So this kind of love is not this easy you know, happy guitar music in the background playing kind of love. This is gritty and ugly and hard and rough. There might be a few people in my life that we love this way, right? Maybe there's a few people you can think of. But do we love each other in the church like this? As I look across the aisle, do I love that person like this? Peter is telling these early believers, while it may be that the world around you does not love you, and they are actively against you, and you are grieved with various trials, don't let that stop you from loving your fellow believers. Don't let that be a hindrance in your heart. Don't stuff your mind and heart so full of the concerns of the world that you punt on your blessed, divinely appointed duty of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you see why it is so imperative that we then take on the mindset of Peter when he says, when he speaks of rejoicing in various trials? Because if we're not, then there's no way I'm going to be able to love my brothers and sisters when I am in the middle of trials. Because I'm too focused on how uncomfortable I am, how down and out I am, how mean people are to me, how rough my life is going, all of these negative things around me. I'm too focused on that that I can't then obey this and love my brothers and sisters. That's why when we're in the middle of trials and in the middle of difficulty, that we must set our hope beyond this world and onto the next one. We must cling to the promise that our true inheritance, as we read earlier, is not here. It is in heaven, and it's being kept locked away for you. Only when I live that way will what's going on around me not keep me from loving my brothers and sisters. Fourth, brotherly love. He says, love one another earnestly after he says, a sincere, brotherly love. Peter is using the word Philadelphia. 
which is used of the type of love you find between families, namely siblings. It's an intentional word choice. As we've already covered, Peter is telling us here that being a part of the family of God means that we are to love each other like we really are a family. So let's do a thought exercise. Think of your family. Think of how many times they might get under your skin or perhaps even let you down. Think of the arguments you've had between siblings, yet you continue to love them. Why? Because that's your family. But Peter is saying here that the kind of love that you have for your blood family is the kind of love you need to have for your blood-bought family. It's the same kind of love You see, our siblings might make grave mistakes and commit sins against us. And we continue to love them even actively. Often, though, we don't find that kind of love in the church, do we? Where it should be the most prevalent to the point of overflowing, we often find that Christians are the first to write each other off. We are the first to show each other no grace even though we have been shown much grace. There's so much judgmental spirits, so many different criticisms, so many different slanders, when this should be the most loving place on the planet. Because this is the family of God. And this is what we're telling the watching world. Remember, Jesus said that they would know you're my disciples by how you love each other. So if we don't love each other, how do they know we're his disciples? Because we told them? Because we said it? People will altogether leave the church for the sake of offense from a brother or sister. Even though your brother or sister in your family has let you down and treated you poorly very often and committed sins against you, but you forgive them and show them grace, the point is here that Peter is saying a sincere love, not a a hypocritical love. Not that I show a grace-filled love to my blood family members while not extending that same love to my blood-bought family members. That I love them differently. I give you a little bit. You get no grace. My family gets plenty of grace. A sincere love, a fervent love that manifests itself in a brotherly love is what we are to show one another. But how? Do we love each other with this kind of love? We show it by loving each other at our worst. It has been said that we are never more like God than when we forgive. And I would add that perhaps never are we more like Christ than when we show our love to others while they are at their worst. Not just down and out, but at their worst against you. Romans 5, 8. Where do I get this idea from? Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, you know this, Christ died for us. Not that Jesus waited for you to get it together. Not that Jesus waited for you to to earn it. Not that Jesus waited for you to be kind and show him love and concern and mercy. First, he died for you while you were his enemy while you were in rebellion against him. My friends, that is how we are to love each other. Even when there were 
finding each other on bad days and even when we're not as kind as we ought to be one another, that we would all be of the mindset that I'm going to show this person the same love that Christ has shown me because I've never deserved the love of Jesus. So I can't make someone else earn or deserve my love. As a matter of fact, it is precisely because you have been shown love that you are to show love. Lastly, it's the gospel that makes this possible. We've had a narrow focus on simply the command to love up to this point. But now let's just take a moment to zoom out to get the full picture of what Peter is saying here. Undoubtedly, the the main theme of this passage is centered around loving one another. We asked the question, how are we to love a bit ago? But after answering that question, the next one that arises, at least in my mind, maybe you're perfect and you know how to love people this way. But the arises in my mind is, okay, how on earth can I love that way? How on earth am I to love like that? Peter shows us that it's because of the gospel's power in your life that not only are you commanded to love this way, but now you are empowered to love this way. You see in verse 25 that you heard the gospel. He says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter is surrounding this command to love one another with a rich assortment of language related to the gospel. He calls the gospel good news here in this verse. He calls it the word of the Lord in the previous verse. He calls it the word of God. And then he also calls it the truth earlier in verse 22. But here at the end of verse 25, which is also the end of our chapter, he writes that the word is the good news that was preached to you. At some point in each of our history in the Lord, we heard the gospel. This might seem like a really small detail to focus on, but in reality, it's the basis upon which the rest of the discussion about the gospel is built. That's because the hearing of the gospel is a prerequisite to salvation. You have to hear the gospel to be saved. Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Everyone gets a gold star. Hearing through the word of Christ. Paul's phrasing of the word of Christ is the words of Christ, or teachings about Christ, or in other words, the gospel. He then writes in Galatians 3.2, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? or by hearing with faith. You see that? Hearing with faith. Our God is a God who speaks. The beginning of the Bible of creation itself begins with God speaking. God said, let there be light while the earth was formless and void. And guess what? There was then light. In the same manner, just as the earth was formless and void, indicating lifelessness. You and I were dead in the trespasses and sins. We were dead in the dominion of darkness until the Lord spoke, creating newness of life within us. 
It was as though God said to your darkened heart, let there be light. And suddenly there was light. Peter says that this word of God is living and abiding word of God. It is the living and abiding word of God. He says that in verse 23. In other words, God's word, the gospel specifically in this context, maintains its truthfulness, its power, and its efficacy throughout all generations. Though people, society, and times will change, the gospel will never need updating, tweaking, a fresh cone of paint, a new way to phrase it. It will not need smoke and fancy lights. The gospel does not need to be made culturally acceptable. The overall message will never need to be updated in any way. The word of the Lord remains forever. It's the living and abiding word of God. Further, it will never run out of power or strength to save. God will always use His gospel to save sinners. While society and sinners will always invent new ways to display their depravity, God will always have one way of displaying His power and might in redeeming the lost through the proclamation of the gospel. In this proclamation, the power is not in the messenger. It's not in me or anyone else. It's not in coercing an emotional response. Why are the lights on and it's so bright in here? Because we don't need to manipulate you into God moving in your heart. The gospel does not need the lights to be low or the music to be soft. In this proclamation, the power is found in the living and abiding word of God. It's God's word. We also see that you obeyed the gospel. Verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. You have obeyed the truth. And what is the truth? What does this mean? The truth is the message that, that makes us Christians. It is the all-uniting truth that binds Christians across time and space together. It is the truth that God is holy and righteous. It is the truth that man is sinful and depraved. It is the truth about our great need to be reconciled back to God, but our great inability to do so. Every religion has something to cure what ails you. But only in Christianity do you see that you have no way of making yourself right before God. It is the truth about Jesus Christ reconciling us back to God through His sacrifice on the cross that we sung about earlier. He bore our sins. The reason why that song says that He extinguished the wrath meant for us is because He took on the full measure of God's wrath meant for you and I. The gospel is not that Jesus Jesus loves you. The gospel is Jesus loves you so much that He bore God's wrath for you. He died under God's wrath. He became your sin. He became your sin and God's holy, righteous fury towards you was completely spent on His own Son and it pleased the Father to do this. 
The truth is that Jesus, as the perfect sacrifice, lived the life that we could never live and then died the death that we should have died. He was raised back to life and he ascended on high where he reigns supreme to this day at the right hand of the Father. And now, Jesus said, the, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, the authoritative call to everyone, you included, is to repent of our sin. Turn back to God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone in here this morning who is in Christ has heard that message and has obeyed the call to repent and believe. That is to say that no one in here this morning who is in Christ deserved it, earned it. We all are blessed recipients of God's mercy. This is what Peter means in verse 22 when he says that we've purified our souls. To obey the truth is to obey the gospel call of repent and believe. When you do this, your sins are wiped away. And you then purify your soul. If you are here this morning and you have either never heard the gospel or obeyed the gospel, the call to you this morning is to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus. Repent of your sins. and You will purify your soul and have salvation for your soul. If you will do that this morning as we have, then you will be part of the family of God that we've been talking about all along with the rest of us. You will be forgiven of your sins, having your soul purified. And we see what this leads to is regeneration or the new birth. You've been born again. He gives us another reason why and how we can love the brethren this way. He says, look at it in verse 22, I'm sorry, verse 23, since you have been born again, since you have been born again, this is the why and how some people will hear the gospel call and they will respond with faith and obedience and others will hear the gospel call and it will have fallen on deaf ears. Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3 that you cannot, you will not see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Regeneration, the new birth, the supernatural work of God the Spirit in the heart of a sinner dead in their trespasses is nothing short of miraculous. If not for the new birth, you cannot respond to the gospel. This is why, again, that the power is not in me tugging at your heartstrings to get an emotional response out of people. Instead, it is in the proclamation of the gospel. Peter writes that we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Listen, the new birth comes when the Spirit sovereignly works through the proclamation of Christ in the heart of of the hearer. Without that, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In saying that we've been born again of imperishable seed, Peter is indicating that we've been born into a new family. Those who have been born of this seed have the proper expectation that they will truly never, I'm sorry, never truly finally perish as this seed, this life that they've been given is imperishable. 
That is to say that it is eternal. Another reason being that this seed that we've been born of and consequently that the family that we've been born into is of a fuller nature than our blood relatives. Listen, our natural earthly families are just that. They are our natural earthly families. Listen, we pay great respect and hold in high regard this family and we are even commanded to love this family and we do. But we need to understand that the truest, fullest expression of family is the family of God. Why? Because we will dwell together in eternity. John Piper has a book that I love with a very interesting title. It's called This momentary marriage. And when you read through it, you understand that we have these nice sentiments that love is forever. But in reality, in the resurrection, we will not need to be married. I love my wife. She knows I love her and I would do anything for her. And I serve her the way as to the best of my ability that Christ loves the church. But there will come a day where Christ will have his church in eternity. And we will no longer need anything else. We will have the fullest expression of earthly shadows. We will have the real thing. We will dwell together in eternity. The songs that we will sing together are going to be with our family of God. Our blood-bought family. We see that because the seed that unites the family of earth is perishable. Meaning one day it will no longer be. This family will no longer be. We will not be family in eternity because we are blood relatives here. The family that we will dwell with for eternity is of the imperishable seed. That means that we have brothers and sisters that we've never met. We will be surrounded by brothers and sisters our blood-bought family. Peter tells us in verse 22 that we've purified our souls by our obedience to the truth for, indicating purpose, a sincere brotherly love. You've been born again by the love of God to show God's love to the people of God. The command to love one another is not a religious platitude, but it's the foundational virtue of Christian community. God has caused us to be born again, washing away our guilt, purifying our souls, and giving us a new heart. And it's with this new heart and life that we are to love one another sincerely, earnestly, and constantly. Let's stand. As is our custom, we're going to have a time where you can respond to the Lord in song or in prayer. We're not going to ask you to come to the front. However the Lord is dealing with you this morning in your heart, perhaps ask, do I love this way? And if not, why not? And Lord, please create this heart in me. So We're going to have a time for you to respond to the Lord however He's stirring in you. You can sing along with this song if you know it, or sit quietly and pray. And then Josh will come up and do our doxology and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We thank you, Lord, for adopting us into your family, though we are most undeserving. We thank you for showing us your mercy and your grace. We thank you that when we grasp this, how undeserving we are, that it fills us with joy because we see the true nature of your love, that we can't earn it, that we can't ever deserve it, but you show it to us freely because we are your children. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would show that kind of love to each other, that we wouldn't make one another earn that love, but that we would constantly and fervently show that love to each other so that we could uh, display Christ well to the watching world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.